Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. Psychedelic medicine is transforming mental, physical, and spiritual health, and entrepreneurship will be key to expanding access. Business Trip explores the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and I'll be co-hosting with Matthias Serebrinsky. Today's episode is with Genesee Hertzberg, the co-founder of Sage Integrative Health. Sage is a holistic mental health clinic based in Berkeley, California that offers a range of services, including ketamine therapy, psychotherapy, somatic therapy, acupuncture, and other modalities. Genesee is both a psychologist at Sage, as well as an owner. The fact that Genesee wears both of these hats makes for a really broad and nuanced conversation. And fun fact, she's also a therapist for the MDMA therapy for PTSD trials sponsored by MAPS. In the first half of the episode, we talk about ketamine-assisted therapy and the healing journey. This includes Genesee's protocol, the difference between high-dose and low-dose ketamine experiences, how trauma lives in the body, and how to work with that trauma. In the second half, we transition into the business stuff and chat about how Genesee actually runs Sage Integrative Health. After bootstrapping it and raising no outside funding to date, Genesee shares about what it takes to get a for-profit clinic off the ground. We also get the chance to talk to Genesee about the nonprofit she created, Sage Institute, where she uses a sliding scale payment structure to increase access to Sage's services. Like Sage Integrative Health, you could say today's episode is truly an integrative experience. We get to see what it's like to build a psychedelic clinic from the perspective of someone who is a healer, community leader, and entrepreneur. And now, to the episode. Welcome to the Business Trip Podcast. Great to have you here. What is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and how does it work? Thank you. It's, it's lovely to be here. And in terms of ketamine-assisted therapy, ketamine is one of the few currently legal psychedelics uh, on the market right now. It's available by prescription from a physician or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And there are two different ways that it shows up in the in the market right now. One of them is through infusion centers. So, so that's not ketamine-assisted therapy. It's just ketamine infusion where people go in, are, are hooked up to an IV and get an infusion, which typically happens maybe twice a week for the first few weeks and then slows down over time. And that impacts the biochemistry of the person and seems to be helpful for a lot of people with treatment-resistant depression, even without the therapy component. But what we found, we hold an integration group actually for anyone who's working with ketamine in, in any therapeutic way, including those who don't do it with therapy. And a lot of times in those settings, there's just a lack of safety, a lack of preparation, a lack of um, support through the experience, which, which can be you know, quite agitating. It can also be quite profound, but ketamine is a psychedelic that can bring people into very altered states of consciousness and without a supportive person there, it can, it can be scary and even traumatizing for some people. So ketamine-assisted therapy, as distinct from just ketamine infusions, is a process of working in psychotherapy with ketamine as an adjunct. So typically someone meets with first a prescriber and who assesses their viability as a ketamine patient and prescribes the ketamine if it seems like a good fit. 
It can be prescribed through either uh, sublingual lozenges or through intramuscular injection, or again, as an IV treatment. And then the client goes on to work with a therapist doing preparation sessions where they learn about the medicine itself and how it might impact them. They also learn about the course of treatment and they develop a sense of safety with the therapist, learn about how to prepare themselves mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, etc. So after however many preparation sessions we determine is appropriate, people then have a ketamine-assisted therapy session, which for us is three hours long. And in that session, the client ingests the ketamine, either through the lozenge that I mentioned earlier, or they're injected and they will end up having a ketamine experience. And, and that can vary from low dose where they're still you know, present in the room and able to talk to the therapist. We call that psycholytic psychotherapy or higher dose where they're more going inwards, wearing eye shades and listening to music and have more of a full, almost dissociative experience. Many people have mystical experiences in, in these states. And then as they're coming down, the therapist and client talk about the experience and start to integrate it. And then there are integration sessions afterwards. We usually like to do at least one integration session about one to three days after the ketamine session while it's still fresh. And then we'll follow up with usually at least another one or two integration sessions thereafter. And often people go through a number of rounds of this treatment. It can be very impactful for people. It can really shift them out of deep depressions and, and also help to open up and deepen the therapy itself. But often people need at least, I would say, six or to eight more ketamine sessions over the course of, sometimes it's it's a shorter period of time, like four to six weeks. And sometimes it ends up being a, a longer period of time, like a, a number of months or, or even years. You mentioned that you work with patients in a low dose or psycholytic dose, and then it could be a high dose or a psychedelic dose. How do you define which patient gets the psycholytic or the psychedelic dose? So we always start with a lower dose, a psycholytic dose, and the psychiatrist will determine what that is for each individual client. But we're aiming towards a psycholytic session because those can be incredibly valuable for everyone. So we want to get a sense of how does this work for this particular client? Are they able to communicate with us in that state? Does it seem to really open up and, and support the treatment? And is it helping them in terms of their mood and their symptoms? So we'll, we'll have at least the first session as a lower dose session. Some people will love that and want to stay there. And other people will like that, want to continue there for a while with an ongoing curiosity about the higher dose sessions. It's interesting that you have this wiggle room, so to speak. I think about how clinical trials are being done for different psychedelic therapies. And I would say that it's usually a higher dose, more of a psychedelic dose. So arguably an advantage of ketamine and being prescribed off-label is that you can play with that and explore and, and try different things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would equate low-dose ketamine to more like MDMA, which is more psycholytic in nature. Typically, you talk and process their experiences throughout, though sometimes they will have fully inward mystical experiences. But more often, it's a process and more often it's a yeah, psycholytic therapy where psilocybin, more often, like you're saying, is more of a high-dose psychedelic experience. So ketamine kind of gets the, the best of both worlds in a way. I'm curious on what is that patient or client journey, how do they go from a non-psychedelic session to then doing a ketamine-assisted therapy session to then going back to a non-psychedelic session or integration, but also 
the idea that maybe they will go back a year later into a ketamine-assisted therapy session. So what is that typical client's journey? Yeah, so I'm going to sort of separate these into sort of two different types of clients. Some of them come in knowing that they want to do ketamine-assisted therapy, and we are working towards that from the beginning, and they do more frequent ketamine sessions throughout. Other clients are coming in, either they're just coming in for regular therapy, and this is something that might come up as we talk about what they're struggling with. I might think, oh, ketamine might be a useful treatment for you. So I might give them some information about it and see if it's something they're interested in. And others come in knowing they want ketamine-assisted therapy, but really in the context of an ongoing therapy treatment. So for either of those two types of clients, we'll start off in regular therapy and work together for some time. Often it's it's weeks or, or even months or, or even a year or so before they come around to being ready. I've noticed that just based on the, the media and the way that psychedelics have been portrayed over the years, particularly with the drug war, particularly for certain populations who are particularly oppressed by the drug war, like people of color, for example, who see mass incarceration as a result of petty drug charges and are like, I'm just going to stay away from that. So for some people, it just takes some time for them to get used to the idea. Even if they have found me because I offer psychedelic therapy, they want to do it. There's still a lot to unpack around their fears and concerns and yeah, ways that it might. One one big fear that I've seen is a fear of unraveling, that they've kind of worked so hard to get to this place, especially people with a lot of trauma in their backgrounds, and they, they, they're scared of what would happen if they let go. And, and ketamine and, and most psychedelics really have this effect of softening the defenses and opening people up to what's underneath. And, and that can be very scary for people. So, so sometimes we're, we're spending a lot of time working with that or other fears might be that they'll embarrass themselves. They'll do something stupid or embarrassing or inappropriate, that it will impact their brain in the long term. So yeah, keep, I think back to that. I don't know if you remember this advertisement a while back coming from the government and the whole drug war back in the 80s of like, this is your brain on drugs and they crack an egg into a pan and it's there frying. So, I mean, that, that I think is just so ingrained in many people's minds. And so we have to undo those perceptions. So yeah, it can take, it can take some time for some folks, less time for others. And then eventually we'll, we'll get started with the ketamine work. And because we've been working together for a while, the safety and trust is already established. And we'll have the session and spend whatever time we need integrating it. Because ketamine is a shorter acting drug and also has an impact on memory, sometimes it's harder for people to remember the specifics of the sessions, especially at higher doses. And so it, I see it as my job to take really good notes and also to help people to circle back to often the very potent and meaningful experiences that they had. So some of integration is going back, remembering what happened, tying it to their current lives and meaning. Some of it is a somatic integration of working with the ways that other trauma lives in their body and, and helping them to feel and express and move through those feelings. And then part of it is, is something you might call implementation. Like a lot of times people get insights about how to change their lives or how to redirect their lives in a healthier way. And so supporting people and really following through on those insights. 
You mentioned the fear of unraveling. I've heard this many times from folks that are not experienced with psychedelic medicine. And what I'm hearing is that there's a part that is bringing that fear into awareness. But my question for you is what happens after the fear comes into awareness? Like, How do you work with a client to overcome that? Yeah, so a lot of it's really just making space for the fear, like that it's generally a part of them. I, I, I like to think of the psyche as manifesting in different parts of ourselves that, that developed in our childhood in response to the conditions and adapted to different circumstances. So this I, I see is sort of a protector part that is worked really hard, like I said, to hold people together. And, and often that protector part just needs to be heard, needs to be able to express its fears and concerns and be understood in them. So a piece of it is just a real receptivity to all of their feelings and fears and worst case scenarios and just helping them to voice those things and acknowledging them as, as legitimate on some level and then also offering some psychoeducation around what I've actually actually seen. The primary time that you see people kind of fully unraveling as a result of these substances, and it's not, it, it does happen on rare occasion, but it does happen is more often with the tryptamines like psilocybin, LSD, DMT. And it's more often when someone has a family history of psychosis and or past experiences of, of psychosis and when those are unmanaged. So once we've determined that we think it's safe for them to move forward, we don't foresee that as being a risk. And we've done everything we can to manage that potential risk. So I'll let them know that. And yeah, just tell them about what could actually happen. Like it could feel in the session like their guard is down and like they're more open to talking about their trauma, for example, or they're more open to talking about the relationship and their feelings towards me or more open to revealing certain secrets or aspects of their experience or history that they typically keep hidden because they have a lot of shame around them. And then we can work collaboratively to think about are there ways that we actually want to work together to protect them from that? Are there certain boundaries that they want me to help them hold? in the session when their guard is down are there you know certain places that they don't want to go and if I hear them going in any one of those directions then I'll say we made an agreement earlier that you didn't want to go here so let's let's pause this session and kind of shift to another topic and we can come back to it and think about whether this is really something you want to be talking about in our next session. So there's a part that wants to bring those feelings out often, but another part that really doesn't. I guess one piece of what we're doing here is uh, working with these protective parts to ensure that they feel comfortable stepping into the work and knowing that I'm going to support them in not going places that they don't want to go. And and also in knowing that this fear of unraveling is, is not likely given the particular context, assessment, who they are as individuals. Would you say that the fear of unraveling and those parts that people tend to protect would be called shadow work? Is that how you would define that? 
Yeah, I mean, the parts that people tend to protect, it definitely could could be termed in Jungian terms, shadow elements. So elements of the personality we tend to disidentify with because they were rejected or disconfirmed in our early childhood. And so they live in the psyche as dissociated parts of ourselves. And interestingly, sometimes those parts are our shameful parts or our traumatized parts or wounded parts. Sometimes those parts are just beautiful parts of ourselves, charismatic and outgoing. And sometimes they hold our vitality because in our childhood, there wasn't space for us to be those ways. Yeah. And I guess on that note, we, Matthias and I, spend a lot of time speaking with companies that are pursuing the FDA pathway. And in that world, there's such a strong tie between a company developing a therapy going after a specific indication. And that indication is in the DSM manual. It could be major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. And then I look on the other side of the spectrum, kind of to what we're talking about here, about this idea that all humans have shadows and parts of ourselves that may have experienced trauma. And I'm kind of trying to reconcile like the different approaches between a company that's going after a specific indication versus the way you're speaking about it, where it's like, this is the human condition. And like, I'm wondering when you speak to a patient, are you diagnosing them with the specific indications or do you kind of look at them as an individual who is looking to heal parts of themselves like any human? I really appreciate this question. It speaks to, in my mind, a real, I think, split in our culture, where on the one hand, we have the FDA approval system, we have the DSM diagnostic manual, and we have a certain tradition within psychology and psychiatry that are very symptoms-focused, diagnoses-focused, and often looking to very specific short-term treatments, including medications and also certain, quote-unquote, evidence-based treatments, to cure a disease, which really often looks like just alleviating symptoms. And then we have many, many people in psychotherapy, ranging from psychiatrists to psychologists to marriage and family therapists, social workers, who see human suffering in a very different way, see it as a spectrum and something that we all experience in one way or another. I think about it as mental health privilege, actually, that some people are born into families where there's just they're better adjusted, they're they're more psychologically healthy, they have more often resources. And, and so there's there's less intergenerational trauma, less of a history of trauma. And for those people, they may have less acute symptoms and less kind of diagnosable symptoms or illnesses. And then there are those who were born into situations that just have incredible amounts of trauma and violence and neglect and abuse and structural oppression and racism and coming out of an environment like that, there's just, it's inevitable that you're going to experience uh, significant symptoms of a wide range of qualities. So there is that kind of mental health exists on a spectrum. And for all of us, I actually think about this as as relational trauma. Um, Most of us had some things happen in our early relationships with our parents that left certain parts of ourselves feeling unseen or rejected or dismissed. 
and those parts go into the, the shadow realms. And so there is this process of working to integrate the wholeness of our person and our personality that I think is important growth work for anyone, no matter where you exist on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to add that in my work, I, as a psychologist, I have to hold both. When in order to do this work with ketamine, it, it is a, it's a schedule three controlled substance. And we do need to be able to justify our use of it to the FDA or anyone who were to audit our files. And so we find a DSM diagnosis that is most appropriate to the particular individual. And most people who are coming in suffering have something that fits within the DSM. And so whether it's generalized anxiety or depression or something of the sort. So so we do have to rely on these more, more structural ways of doing things, even if that's not where our underlying understanding of this work lies. And I think that's what's happening in the clinical trials as well. I think that they are really needing to cross their T's, dot their I's, and and do this in a way that's going to be generally acceptable by the FDA, by the DEA, by the Board of Psychology, Board of Psychiatry. And and it's also just how drug development works is you you develop a treatment for a specific indication. And so in these cases, they're they're taking MDMA, for example, and saying, which indication is is this going to be most effective for? And we, for the most part, agree within the the community that, that PTSD is a really good fit for that, where psilocybin might be a really good fit for end of life anxiety. And so so it, it makes sense that that's how the studies are happening right now. And once we move into legalization and commercialization, you know, and the availability of using the MDMA and psilocybin in our practices, we'll be able to start using them off-label for a number of, of different indications. The other component of these medicines moving from kind of FDA clinical trials to commercialization is the opportunity to integrate them with other treatments could be body work or EMDR. And that is one of the things that SAGE has, right? And so I'm curious on how you think about the integration of different therapies with ketamine-assisted therapy. This is one of the topics that I get very excited about. I just think that there's so much potential there for integrating these different modalities, particularly ones that focus more on the body with ones that focus more on the minds, the emotional processes and the psyche. And so I've really started off that exploration in in my own work and found that bringing in body work and bringing in acupuncture to my psychedelic work was incredibly um, helpful. And well, one of the ways is in kind of opening up those uh, parts of ourselves that don't want to let go. Like sometimes psychedelics soften those defenses right away, but other times they can actually tighten them. Those those parts can come on board and, and tighten even more against the possibility of opening up. And acupuncture, for example, has just been incredibly helpful in working on a somatic level to start to help those areas of tension and constriction to to relax. On the other end, when it comes to the integration and implementation and the preparation, modalities like naturopathic medicine and nutrition can be really helpful. There's the term dieta that comes from 
plant medicine work in Latin America. And, and that often entails really limiting the foods and, and toxins that we put in our body in preparation for psychedelic sessions. And, and some say it, it creates more of an open channel to receive the medicine. So having a professional help you think through how best to do that can be really helpful. And then on the other hand, people often get messages around needing to improve their health in a various ways, both how they eat, but also get a real assessment of what's happening in internally and where their neurochemistry might be off. And then also in terms of their daily life practices like exercising and meditation. And so having a, a practitioner to help you think through those things, coach you and following through on those intentions can be really helpful. I was speaking with someone recently who was sharing that in her ketamine somatic body work, she was accessing all sorts of memories, even perinatal memories. And that whole concept to me is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> Can you speak to that in terms of what you've experienced or with your clients? It sure is. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it in everything from holotropic breath work to really all of the psychedelics I've worked with, MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca more in my own experiences and, and ketamine in my work and yeah there are for certain people a, a way that the medicine seems to bypass our you know conscious memory and take us into places that see, feel seem to be more of a somatic memory the ways that the body holds our trauma in our system and allow us to touch into those places often it, it looks like actually moving into the position that the body made in order to protect themselves in that moment or the position that they got frozen in. Peter Levine, who developed somatic experiencing modality that's for both psychotherapists, but also non-psychotherapists of working with trauma in the body. He sort of looks at the ways that animals respond to trauma and describes the ways that when something happens, say their deer is chased by a cheetah, the, they escape. The, the deer has been in this fight or flight mode and it then is safe. And what they do is they shake it off. Their system is able to naturally just shake off the, the trauma. And so it, it doesn't, they don't go on to carry it in their bodies. Where for us and humans and, and some animals too, in various circumstances, the opportunity to just shake it off isn't there. Maybe it's a chronic experience or maybe they're in utero and that's not possible or going through the birth canal or just in a very infantile state where the threat is consistent. Then it, it lives in the body, not having been properly released or attended to. And so, yeah, often these medicines bring us back into that, that frozen or stuck place. And it's almost like bringing, the way I've experienced it, is bringing oxygen into each one of those frozen cells and almost like touching them with love and safety and allowing them to slowly take that in and to slowly release themselves. And the release can look anything from a really subtle process of like slow unfurling to a more dramatic process of shaking or sobbing or screaming or pushing. I had one experience where this was actually in a holotropic breath work 
workshop and, and this was myself as, as the experience. And I was taken back to an experience that felt like a combination of a, a prenatal trauma with a past life trauma. I mean, I have no idea about the past life piece, but I was actually envisioning myself on a, like almost like a cross with my hands tied down being persecuted. And, and that felt actually like another iteration. If we think of sort of the like holographic nature of the universe or how does Stan Groff talk about it? These kind of multiple matrices or different different levels of experience that happen from the, the biological, developmental, prenatal, past life and relational and all sort of combine themselves into one complex. And so here I was experiencing the, the various elements of, of this one complex as it lived in my body. And the person who was holding space for me, I asked if they could hold down my hands just to kind of amplify that feeling of being held down. And I breathed into that for a while. And then eventually I, I built up the courage to break myself free from it and, and came out making this giant roar, like a lion, just full on, like broke out and regained my power. And it, it was incredibly empowering and incredibly relieving and healing at levels that I'm not sure I will ever, ever fully understand. And so when you have a client who is experiencing having a, you would call it like a mystical experience, a spiritual experience, what do you believe your role is to be in that moment? Well, so I'll distinguish there. I think I think what we were just talking about may not, it may be experienced as mystical, but it may not be. Like a, a client recently went into a place of feeling, the image that came to mind was an infant just like left completely alone and just totally alone in utter despair. And that she was feeling that in her body. She was sobbing and and that image was just like, that was there and stuck around. And she was able to verbalize it. This was on a lower dose. So I felt like my role there was to be with her, support her in her experience, make contact somatically, physically. We talk about touch prior to these sessions and get consent around it. And if the client is open to it, it can be a very profound way of of offering a sense of containment and holding and love in these really challenging places. And then later on, we spent time unpacking and trying to understand what was happening there. Mystical experiences, on the other hand, uh, more often seem to show up in higher dose of psychedelic levels. And often people have their eyeshades and their music on. And so I see my role throughout those sessions as in holding a quiet, open, receptive, tuned spaciousness. I'm, I'm sitting in meditation basically and doing my best to tune into what's going on for them and noticing both what I see in them in terms of like grimaces or body movements that might be coming up, what I feel in myself as a, an aspect of what we call the counter-transference. So uh, the the kind of feelings that the therapist picks up in response to the client and and sometimes even reveries like where my mind goes I'll take note of that as well and and some people talk about the field so it's it's kind of the energetic field between therapist and clients and that's a more esoteric term not everyone believes in that but but I found it to be a, a, a very interesting place to explore and stay open to and, and I'll just take note on all of those things and 
uh, really try to you know, hold a loving space for wherever they are. And I often don't know exactly. And then they'll come back afterwards and tell me about it. You mentioned that you are in a meditative state and I'm increasingly finding a deep relation between meditation and psychedelics, either because of the ability to stay present with what's happening uh, from the experiencer, but also you're now talking from the uh, practitioner perspective as well. So how do you connect these two different modalities, so to speak? Well, one of the physiological interconnections between the two is that they both tend to decrease activity in what's called the default mode network of the brain. So that's the part of the brain that has a tendency, or it's actually a connection between different parts of the brain that people have related to the, the ego. So the part of us that is aware of ourselves, is aware of how we show up in the world, reviews past interactions, thinks about future interactions, and is just generally kind of this, this self-reflective part. And it can be kind of ruminative. Like it's, yeah, not, it's important in order for us to get along in the world and interact with others. And also it can really take us out of the present moment. So both psychedelics and meditation practice tends to decrease activity in, in that network. And so it's almost like the ego gets put aside a little bit and we're able to be more just present with what, whatever is right there. And what I found is that having a consistent meditation practice helps to open up the potential for psychedelic experiences to be deeper, more profound for us to, that, that, that kind of ego to, to let go a little bit more and enter into the more unconscious realms or areas of our experience that are harder to typically access. And, and then it can also be incredibly helpful for integration work where having a preparation and integration work and the preparation work beyond just you know, starting to center the mind, finding a, a quiet space within ourselves, it also opens up a space for the emotions or experiences that are likely to come up in the psychedelic session to start to surface Absolutely. And I was realizing that when you were talking about by staying present, you can also capture the energy of the room. It's interesting to think that in indigenous communities, the shaman or uh, medicine woman or medicine man would actually also ingest the medicine, right? And so I feel like that was the way that they would also connect with what was happening for, for the experiencer. But it's interesting to think in our culture, that's a big no-no, right? And so how how you think about that? Do you foresee a future where that changes or how can practitioners go around that? Yeah, yeah, I see that huge value and benefit in that for I think it's one thing that we're lacking in this new phase of psychedelic treatment and of the psychedelic movement and that was a part of indigenous communities for centuries and then it also was a part of the underground world and and the the just psychedelic psychotherapy world prior to criminalization. So yeah, I mean, I, I see the complexities of it as well. When we talk about it, it shows up also when we talk about even just 
therapists in training getting to have experiences of the medicine, which I think is vital. And I really think you need to know the medicines that you're working with. But it, but, but it also shows up in this question of being in the room with the client and the extent to which you can drop into their experiences. I think through deep meditation practice, you can get really close to that. And many people say that at a certain point, the psychedelics have really pointed me in the direction I need to go. And I don't really need that so much anymore. I, I find that my kind of spiritual practice gets me to the same place or to somewhere very similar. So so on some level, it may be that spiritual practice alone can, can really help us to tap into those, those states of consciousness and meet our clients. On the other hand, and in, in the rare experiences where I've been able to explore that, uh, it's been in community settings. A lot of my kind of experiential training, you could call it, and also the support for my work. That's where I get my consultation. It's where I get my a lot of my learning around this work has been in communities of colleagues and practitioners. In those contexts, got into experience being on the medicine while also supporting others on the medicine and. Wow, <laughs> like I would say in on a number of occasions, I've just become by far the best healer that I, I've ever been. So I, I think there's a ton of potential there. I hope that our, I, I'm not sure, but I, I really hope that our systems uh, become open to that over the years as, as that these medicines become more widely accepted because I, yeah, I think there's a ton of potential. Greg, let's talk business. I'm curious about what it takes to open and operate an independent clinic uh, that works with ketamine. So things like the personnel, the initial investment, the startup process, so to speak. Can you shed some light uh, in terms of what it took to get Sage off the ground? Yeah, and I'll actually start with Sage Integrative Health, and I'll give you a little distinction between the two. So Sage Integrative Health was the first business that I co-founded with Julie Megler, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and that is the Integrative Health and Psychedelic Therapy Clinic. And it's a for-profit business, and it has a range of different integrative health modalities in addition to psychotherapy and ketamine-assisted therapy. And then Sage Institute is our nonprofit sister organization that offers sliding scale ketamine assisted therapy and other mental health services primarily. So the nonprofit was really intended to bring the prices down so that almost everyone can afford them. So I'll start with Sage Integrative Health because that was where we started. I mean, the first thing that Julie and I did kind of in parallel were uh, looking for a space. You need to have a location. Well, these days in COVID, you don't necessarily, it could hypothetically all be virtual. But for us, and, and it's really ongoingly, we felt like we needed a space. And that was quite a process. And the city of Berkeley has a lot of zoning and permitting laws that require that basically any building that's zoned residential cannot be converted to a business or a medical zoning because of the housing crisis. So there are very select buildings that have medical permitting at this point or zoning at this point. So we had we had not that many options to choose from. 
And then ultimately we ended up finding a space that was for sale after looking at many, many rentals and not finding the right fit. We found an old abandoned medical office in it. It was uh, converted from a house originally and really sweet little neighborhood. And it was just what we were looking for. We really wanted our clinic to have a homey, comfortable feel, but it, it had been abandoned for 20 years. It was built in the fifties and, and needed a total renovation. So we gutted it and did a complete design and renovation and built it out. And that took, geez, probably about a, a year for that full process. You know, getting permits alone can take months. So then, you know, that we did alongside of starting to build a team. And so we just reached out and started to collect different practitioners of different modalities and, and started an ongoing consultation group to both imagine into what we wanted the clinic to be and also to start to feel into what a multidisciplinary, integrative consultation and team collaboration might look like. So that, that was kind of a fun project that we got to do on top of these other kind of more logistical pieces. So then there are things like legal and entity formation. So determining what type of corporate structure you want to be and nonprofit or for-profit. Also thinking about, we're really interested in alternative governance and finance models. Purpose economy is a really good place to go to, to learn more about that. But just ways that we're not stepping into some of the traditional capital models that end up, I think, can you know potentially have a harmful effect on the company as a whole, pushing it towards uh, profit over mission. And we wanted to go a different route. We wanted to move towards more of a transformational business model. There's also developing a, a board and obtaining liability insurance, which can be a tricky thing just in terms of offering this very novel modality that a lot of insurance companies don't understand or know how to wrap their heads around. And also for our integrative health clinic, finding a company that was willing to insure everything from a massage therapist to an acupuncturist to a ketamine-assisted therapist. You mentioned a lot of logistical and operational things that need to happen to open and operate an independent clinic. What's been the hardest things to get done? Well, all of the things I mentioned so far were like tedious and annoying and burdensome, but not necessarily hard. So those, if I had gone back, I would have hired an operations manager from the get-go. We bootstrapped it. We didn't. Let's see, I guess we got one $50,000 private business loan. And besides that, we we were pretty much just like investing our own money and really trying to keep our expenses to a minimum. But going back, I think I would have sought out other sources of financing and hired someone who's really loves doing ops work. So that was challenging. There, there's also the, the building of the business, you know, developing a fee structure and compensation structure and um, thinking about accessibility, figuring out how to cover your overhead. And that is something that I did on my own. So I guess that they don't teach you that at CIIS. No, no, they actually teach you very little about even just starting a private practice. And, and I was able to find the resources I needed to start a thriving private practice. So prior to opening this group practice, I was doing great with all these things. And so I was like, oh, I'm sure a group practice is just doing more of the same. It'll be fine. <laughs> and that was a very naive assumption. It, there's just so much more that goes into running a, a group practice or a larger clinic. Are you still looking for a finance or business person to support you? Yeah, if anyone's interested, please reach out. So you mentioned the B word, break even. 
can we talk a little bit what it means to break even in a group practice? If someone's thinking about starting one, how many patients at minimum they should have? So I will, I'll tell you the story of how this worked for us because I, I don't consider myself an expert in this area. We brought on a number of practitioners, like I said, without any major financing and so no marketing. So we were really just relying on our networks and Julie and I both had substantial me- mental health networks. And so we were able to bring in referrals that way for therapists and psychiatrists and we did some minimal social media marketing, but but didn't have any support in marketing for a while. So one of our struggles early on was filling the practices, particularly about our alternative health providers. They We weren't hiring them on a salary. We just were basically, we had a fee split and we were paying them for the amount of hours that they worked. So they knew that it may take a while to build their practices. But even so, it, you know, it, it did take a while for some of them. We also learned during this time that many people who wanted to join our practice were most interested in our model. They loved what we were doing. They were interested in the community and they were interested in the ketamine-assisted therapy training and support. So they wanted to plug in for those reasons and we're excited to see some clients with us. But working for a group practice, you're going to be paying more in overhead or you're going to be, you know, your pay will be less because there's, there's a greater overhead cost. And so there's also a motivation for those same practitioners to be having their own private practice on the side. Eventually, we built up a big enough team and really have just, I guess, that our name's gotten out there. So we've we've had a lot of referrals for psychotherapy and ketamine-assisted therapy specifically. So we've easily been able to fill all of our, our mental health providers' practices to the point that they're, you know, able to work. And at that point, that so that was probably two years in, I would say, when we were finally breaking even and, and covering our costs. At that point, we had enough, a little bit of extra money to be able to hire on some additional management help. Up until this point, it had just been me and Julie running the business. And like I said, we don't have all the skill sets necessary. And so we weren't running the business as well as we could. So we brought on an operations consultant and a marketing specialist. And and that has been a huge, huge blessing. We still are, are working to get to the place where we can pay Julie and I for a management time. So we see clients and, and get paid that way. But yeah, we're, we're still kind of thinking through our business model, thinking through our compensation model, thinking through the areas of kind of the target populations that we want to serve to figure out how to get to a place of, you know, ultimate profitability and, and getting to yeah, pay Julie and I for our time. We're not we're not aiming to become a, a highly profitable clinic. We are interested in some level of, of expansion, particularly towards a retreat center, but we do want to be able to break even. We want to be able to compensate our, our practitioners well with potential bonuses. And, and we'd love to be able to, to develop some savings to be able to devote towards a new project. Have you been able to figure out ways for insurance to cover your ketamine therapy treatments? So yes and no. (laughs) Insurance covers psychotherapy and 
it covers psychiatry. So our intakes done with the psychiatrists are billed as a typical psychiatric intake. And our prep and integration sessions are billed as a, a typical psychotherapy session. Our ketamine-assisted therapy sessions are billed as an extended therapy session. It still doesn't cover the, the full three hours, but people are at least able to get some form of reimbursement. We're not in network on any insurance panels. So um, if people are getting reimbursement, it's because they have a PPO rather than HMO, which allows for out-of-network reimbursement. And there's such a wide variety in terms of what that reimbursement looks like. So especially for, for psychotherapy. So for some people, it's maybe $45 that they're getting back a session. And for others, they may get up to 150 back a session. So that varies quite a bit. You'd also talked about your interest in increasing accessibility and the Sage Institute has a program that has a sliding scale depending on people's needs. Can you kind of tell us about how that works and some stories that you can share? So our original idea at Sage Health, Sage Integrative Health, was to create an integrative health clinic that was also fully accessible to anyone who needed it. And we thought about different models of the hat, like a, a sliding scale that goes in both directions. So beyond just our typical fee for service, you could actually, you would pay much higher if you had a significantly higher income. And there's also the idea of a patient assistance fund where people are you're just collecting funds that are donated to to specifically subsidize lower fee treatments. We weren't able to get either of those programs running successfully. We, we didn't put as much energy in as we could, but it wasn't working out with the kind of resources and capacity that we had at the time. So at that point was when we started thinking maybe we just need a whole other program and one that's a nonprofit 501c3 so that we can collect donations and grants tax-free. So that's where Sage Institute comes in. And there at this point, the money that comes in to subsidize client fees and also to cover our overhead is in part from donations, from philanthropy, from you know foundation grants, that kind of thing. And then in part from client fees. Our clients do pay a fee, but it's much, much lower than market rate. So it ranges from $15 to about $150, depending on income. And so we do still bring in some client fees. And then the other way that we're able to make it work is that we're set up as an internship training program. So we have psychotherapists in training. Typically, they've gotten their master's at least if, or they finish their graduate programs completely and they have some experience in psychotherapy, but they still need to gain their hours towards licensure. And that system is, is set up now so that, that people in that situation expect to make less than they will once they're licensed while they're gaining their hours towards licensure, while they're you know receiving supervision and training. And we offer a very rigorous training program in psychedelic assisted therapy. So there's a, there's a high demand. There's a lot of people interested in taking part in our program in order to get this two-year training in, in psychedelic work, which you know has a market value of, I think some of the programs out there cost up to $10,000 for a year-long program. So, so yeah, that's the setup there. There are still some major flaws or areas that we're working on. In part, it has to do with just that 
setup that I described as a whole. If you look at just about any other profession, whether it's someone in the business world coming out of business school or someone in working as a medical doctor, it just the tech sector really just coming out of undergrad, their expected salaries are, are already way up there. They can, they can expect to make far more than a living wage when they've got a master's degree and, and for some even just a bachelor's. And here in the mental health field, and I think this has a lot to do with societal perceptions of the of mental health and seeing it in some ways as more of a feminized field. So, so that plays into it, but also seeing it as, as maybe unnecessary for, for a lot of folks. I think that's changing with COVID when almost everyone is experiencing some form of mental health struggle. Where my mind also goes is to the insurance coverage side of things and that just being such a powerful lever if it can be tapped. Are you optimistic about that in terms of more coverage over time? I am largely thanks to the efforts of Leah Mix and Anthea. They are, they've created, let's see, I forget if they call themselves an official insurance company or more like a linkage between clinics and insurance companies, but basically to be able to provide insurance coverage for psychedelic assisted therapies. So I'm on their advisory board, their clinical advisory board, and I'm also, uh, Sage Integrative Health is going to be one of their pilot clinics. So I'm very interested to see how that will roll out, what it will look like, but they're really prioritizing wanting to make sure that these services are covered with high standards of practice and also wanting to ensure that doctors and psychotherapists get paid what they deserve. One of the issues with traditional insurance coverage and the reason that we aren't on any in-network plans is that the reimbursement rates are half the rates that we would charge otherwise, and it just isn't sustainable to, it, it doesn't cover our overhead to be able to work at that level of, of revenue. And my hope is that as they start to see how effective these treatments are and how in the long run they reduce expenditure on, on medical treatments, that they'll see that it's to their benefit financially. Yeah, the idea of Anthea and, and them becoming a third-party administrator and reimbursements through Medicare or Medicaid and the potential approval of MDMA and psilocybin for psychedelic assisted therapy, it feels like there are all these waves that in a way are in your favor. So with the idea that entrepreneurship and starting something is always hard, as you've mentioned, this has not been easy. At the same time, there are a lot of reasons why to be optimistic in a way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we set up our clinic as a ketamine-assisted therapy clinic, both of them, but really with the intention of being able to incorporate psilocybin and MDMA as they become legal. And and we, we see that happening. We've talked about MDMA therapy, psilocybin therapy potentially being approved in the next few years, and you having involvement with MAPS with MDMA therapy. Where do you envision, beyond the initial indications that they're targeting, right, MDMA targeting PTSD and psilocybin initially being um, major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression, how do you plan to incorporate those medicines into your practice kind of outside of those indications? Like, are there other indications that are that you're like, hmm, this would treat this very well? So for MDMA, I'm really excited about its capacity as a relational solve and a relational healing agent. 
So that can show up in both couples therapy. It was has been used for decades to support couples therapy. And I've seen incredible results that way. So that's, that's one area. And then the other is, you know, one of my dreams that I hope to be able to move towards at some point is an MDMA assisted group therapy to heal cultural trauma. And my, my hope would be is that that would be for people coming from a variety of racial and cultural backgrounds, coming together, perhaps some affinity groups at first to really help people to develop safety, but also coming together and working with their differences and sharing their heart and their experiences. And from this state of expanded awareness and expanded empathy, I think that people will be able to really hear each other and take each other in in a different way. I think there's a huge potential for not just individual healing, but also societal healing there. There's a lot more that MDMA can help for. You know, just a lot. I think really most indications it, it, it can be supportive in, in the context of a really solid therapeutic relationship. But those are my two inspirations at the moment. How about psilocybin? Psilocybin, again, I think there's a, a range of possibilities there. I lean towards MDMA as the kind of first line of treatment for anyone who's got any sort of significant trauma history or even major anxiety. But psilocybin, I see as a, a beautiful, both personal growth tool, tool to treat existential depression, tool to support people again in their end of life anxiety, that the way in which it opens up one's mind to the reality that's outside of what's directly perceptible. It gives us a sense of the interconnectivity of things. It, it often gives us a sense that there's something larger than ourselves. It connects us deeply to the plants and the animals and the trees. I, I, I think that that is it's healing for, for anyone from existential depression to facing death and freaked out about it and also an atheist to just people wanting to do personal growth work and find more meaning in their lives. And so, yeah, I think there, there's a ton of potential for, again, not just individual healing, but also healing of our relationships to each other and to the planet, ecological healing. And, and I just think that's essential in this day and age with what we're facing with climate change. We are going to do a couple rapid fire questions. First rapid fire question, what's your life's purpose? <laughs> well, that's a big one. <laughs> I mean, I, I, when I was about 12 years old, imagined into a clinic or a, an organization that would house the homeless, offer vocational training, and offer shelter for uh, orphans who would then be adopted by the homeless as they went through their healing process. So this was just me growing up in the Bay Area, seeing how many people were struggling. And I've just always had this deep commitment to help people in whatever way I could. And now that's changed and shifted over time. But I, I see myself as here on this earth to create systems and structures and also through my own healing offerings to be able to heal individuals and larger systems in all the ways that I can. My rapid fire question is, what will the psychedelic landscape look like five years from now? I will give you my dream rather than my fear. <laughs> my dream is that Five years from now, MDMA and psilocybin will have been legalized for medicalized use and that there will be a number of clinics and hospitals and VAs and even private practice offerings that 
that are able to offer this work in a way that is client-centered and really respects the ongoing slow nature of the work and is not looking for a magic magic pill with a real good sense of quality of care and ethics and inclusion that those clinics will be accessible to anyone who can benefit both financially accessible and also culturally accessible so that those who have been excluded from the movement in the past will have access in, in the way that anyone else does. And at the same time, I imagine the decriminalization and, and legalization movements moving forward in many states, maybe even across the country, such that not just medical professionals and not just those suffering from medical and mental health issues will have access to working with these medicines in other formats. Yeah, that's my hope. I really, the, the kind of the, the plain and simple vision is that there is an integrative and accessible psychedelic clinic in every neighborhood that is available for anyone who's interested and could benefit. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. That was Genesee Hertzberg, founder of Sage Integrative Health. Yeah, I like how she talked about companion therapies, somatic work, acupuncture, body work, nutrition. It feels like patients and we all are in a healing journey and they're providing a lot more resources than just the ketamine. There's going to have to be a fair amount of education societally and in the medical community to be able to hold space for people, many people who are reporting these types of transpersonal experiences. And so one thing I'm thinking about is how do we bridge that gap? How do we raise awareness? How do we raise education? Maybe it's conversations like this. Yeah, I also realized that it's so multifaceted, meaning no therapist, no practitioner has exactly the same protocol. And even with the same practitioner, depending on what is happening for the patient in front of them, they change the way that they show up, they change their protocols. So um, there's a, such a difference between the way that clinical trials are being conducted and how psychedelic medicine will be practiced in the real world. One huge difference with how psychedelic medicine has been practiced for millennia is that in indigenous communities, the practitioner, the medicine person, medicine woman, medicine man, actually is taking the medicine with the person that's experiencing that. And in Western culture, that is a huge no-no. And so I wonder if at some point, the culture that we are in will be able to embrace that and bring it into the existing psychedelic therapy protocols. The conversation also reminded me about how hard it can be to be both a therapist and a business owner. And the fact that being a therapist on its own is you know, a job and being a business owner and running a business is a job. And how in this psychedelic space, there is really a big need for business people as well as business tools, things like software, to help streamline that process you could say that those things will become more important once 
MDMA gets approved or when Campus gets their therapies approved with psilocybin. But in the end, today, there's ketamine therapies being offered. And so those tools could be also very useful today. One thing I really liked about the episode is that it feels like a breath of fresh air when it comes to how Genesis is thinking about her approach to building a business. We have been talking to founders that are thinking about building million, billion dollar companies. And it's all about scale. Uh, whereas with Genesis, her ambitions are more about impacting a potentially a smaller uh, number of people, but having a very deep impact into those people. So uh, it made me appreciate the work that uh, she and every other therapist is doing in the space. Mm -hmm. I also appreciate the sliding scale payment structure that she's set up for her nonprofit, Age Institute, and really putting a focus on increasing access to ketamine therapy. And so um, for any of the listeners out there, if you are interested in donating to Sage Institute, we've dropped a link in the show notes. And that's it for the episode. If you have any thoughts about this episode, feel free to send us an email. I'm greg at businesstrip.fm. Matthias is Matthias at businesstrip.fm. You can tweet at us or find us on Instagram at businesstripfm. We'd love to hear from you. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. Business Trip is created by me and Matthias Serebrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. Greg, let's talk business. 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 And now, ketamine. About psilocybin. Meditation and psychedelics. Meditation and psychedelics. Meditation and psychedelics. All humans have shadows. 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 What's your life's purpose? Purpose. Purpose. What's your life's purpose? I'm just like blabbering. It's not actually. It's not. It's not coming out clear. I think. What's your life's purpose? Purpose. Let's talk business. 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 Business.